Right, okay. We, this is the Shia on the book of Yechezkel, Le'ilu Nishmosim Ephraim Shmuel ben Avram Arya HaKohen and Chai Tova Bas Eliezer Mendel HaKohen. We are holding in the 12th chapter of Yechezkel and we're up to verse 14. And uh, last week uh, we dealt with the prophecy, Yechezkel's prophecy of what would happen to King Sidkiyahu, uh, the last king of Yehuda, the last king of the southern kingdom of Israel, and in verse, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 14, predicts what will become of his government and his advisors, his civilian advisors, and his military advisors. So this is again chapter 12, verse 14. All those around him, all those around the king, King Tzidkiyahu, Ezra, his aides, his civilian aides, Bechol Agapov. Um, and all these military officers, God says, I will scatter uh, to the wind, to every direction, and I, God says, I will draw a sword to chase after them. And um, again, once again, this is a prophecy um, about what will happen to the former government of Yehuda. And in fact, this is exactly what did happen to them. Um, five years after this prophecy. So, let's just go through the story behind this verse. Uh, it's a prediction, it's a prophecy that, that absolutely came true. Um, so, after prophesying about the killing of King Sidkiel, which we discussed last week, and his sons, uh, not the killing of King Sidkiel, but the blinding of King Sidkiel, and being, him being taken into imprisonment, blinded in Babylonia, Yechezkel here turns his attention to the aftermath of the destruction of Yerushalayim and the temple and what will happen to all the other leaders of Yehuda, both the civil, again, the Ezra, the word in the possible is Ezra, which describes civilian leaders, and Agapov, which is the language of a military leader, a military officer, and also many of the others who followed their advice, their soldiers, etc., now the story is that after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple, he left the Babylonian garrison in Yehuda, in the southern kingdom, around Yerushalayim, under the control of someone that we know very well. <coughs> His name is Gedalia ben Achikam. Now we know him very well because we have a fast that commemorates his assassination, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, Gedalia ben Achikam was a very religious Jewish guy, and uh, he was the head of the civilian government, uh, which was stationed in Mitzpeh. And um, when he was appointed, he had a garrison of Babylonian officers. He was a puppet, puppet leader, um, under the, really under the control of a large garrison of Babylonian soldiers that remained in Yehuda. And um, eventually, he was visited by former senior officers of King Sidkiyahu, military officers, most notably Yochanan ben Korach um, and his brother Yonatan ben Korach, and various other uh, senior officers of the government, the previous government. And um, they met with Gedalia, and Gedalia told them that they shouldn't be concerned about the revenge of the Babylonians uh, for what happened to King Tzidkiyahu with Tzidkiyahu's rebellion. 
and Gedalia ben Achikam promised them that if they returned to the fold and rejoined his government, that the Babylonians wouldn't take out any revenge against them. And this is something that Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, reported on. This is in the 40th chapter of Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu, by Yishavallahem Gedalia ben Achikam. And Gedalia ben Achikam um, ben Shafan uh, promised, swore an oath to them, to these men, under uh, the leadership of this guy called Yochanan ben Korach, um, Lema is saying, Altiru, ah, don't be afraid. May Avod Hakastim from serving the Babylonians, Shavu Baoretz, stay in the land, and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well for you. Now there will be no revenge here. So they agreed. Yochanan ben Korach and his officers uh, accepted, for the time being at least, accepted Gedalia's words. <coughs> Then a few months later, just before Rosh Hashanah, which is where we are now, uh, Yochanan and his soldiers warned Gedalia that there was an individual, uh, a mercenary called Yishmael ben Netanya, a Jewish guy, uh, who had been paid uh, by the king of the Ammonites, someone called Baalis, Melech Ammon, um, to assassinate Gedalia. But uh, unfortunately for Gedalia, Gedalia did not believe them. Um, and um, Yochanan, this guy Yochanan ben Korach then had a secret meeting with Gedalia and asked him for permission to kill this Yishmael ben Netanya um, in a way that would leave no trace like he would just pick him up off the street and dispose of him Um, and uh, he came to him in secret um, because he thought the people would say that he killed this Netanya without a trial. Um, and so Yochanan told Gedalia that he'd do it secretly because he was desperately concerned that this Yishmael ben Netanya was a, an assassin hired by the king of Ammon and he fully intended to kill uh, uh, Gedalia. Um, and Yochanan ben Korach feared that if Gedalia was assassinated it would mean the end of any Jewish settlement in the land of Israel. But Gedalia did not accept the warnings and forbade him to kill this guy, Yishmael ben Netanya. Now, Yishmael ben Netanya arrived on Rosh Hashanah, or just before Rosh Hashanah, to Mitzpeh, where, where uh, Gedalia was. He came with ten soldiers, and Gedalia invited him in to have Yom Tov meal with them, to, to share their Yom Tov meal on Rosh Hashanah, first night Rosh Hashanah. And while they were dining, they assassinated Gedalia and all the people that were there eating with him, including the Babylonian soldiers there who were there, he, uh, there as his bodyguard. But more than that, they weren't just there as his bodyguard, as I pointed out. They were there, really, they were the power behind Gedalia's throne. And so with this, this Yishmael ben Netanya assassinated Gedalia and killed a whole bunch of uh, Babylonian soldiers. And then Yishmael ben Netanya took captive all the people he didn't kill, um, including some of the daughters of the king, uh, King Tzidkiyo, that is. And, and when Yochanan ben Korach heard about this, he engaged Yishmael ben Netanya and his soldiers in battle. He went out to fight him. 
Um, and uh, he killed most of his soldiers, but this, this individual, Yishmol ben Netanya, the assassin, escaped north to Ammon. Um, and uh, in the meantime, Yochanan ben Korach, with his, with his soldiers, rec- rescued the people of Mitzpeh, and all the people gathered. They went to a place right next door to Beis Lechem to gather, because now they feared uh, that the Babylonians would take a very dim view of what happened. They believed that it was the Jews again trying to rebel against Babylonian rule. So they all decided to meet up all the former aides and uh, military and civilian aides of the former king Tzidkio agreed to meet in Bethlehem and they intended to escape to Egypt uh, fearing the reprisals of King Nebuchadnezzar um, after Gedalia was assassinated. Uh, not only that uh, Gedalia was assassinated, but uh, the Babylonian garrison uh, was also attacked. Um, so this, this Yochanan um, ben Korach and another individual called Vizniya ben Hoshea, uh, and they decided before they'd leave, uh, uh, try and escape to Egypt, they asked the advice of Yirmiyo, the prophet Yirmiyo, for advice. And the prophet told them, um, God's word like uh, he got a prophecy uh, but it took him 10 days to get the prophecy and he told them don't go to Egypt you rather stay in Yehuda rather stay in Israel and if you stay in Israel Nebuchadnezzar will believe you that you weren't part of the plot to kill Gedalia and the Babylonian garrison and you'll, you'll stay here and you'll prosper here but if not if you choose to flee to Egypt Nebuchadnezzar's sword will overtake you in Egypt um, but unfortunately for Yochanan ben Korach and uh, all the former aides, all the aides of the former king, King Sidkiyahu they decided not to listen to the advice of Yirmiyah and they actually left and fled to Egypt um, uh, the uh, the the verse says in Yirmiyahu, this is, describes exactly what they did. Vayama Azariah ben Hoshaya, Vayochanon ben Korach, Vacholon Hashim Hazedim Omrim. All this group of former officers of King Sidkiyahu, Vacholon Hashim Hazedim, and all the, the people that were with them who were who described as willful. Uh, they said to Yirmiyahu, you speak falsely. In other words, we don't believe that, that, that God told you that we should stay here in the land of Israel. You, God never told you that we shouldn't go to live in Egypt. Because Baruch ben Neria, who is a student of Yirmiyahu, has incited you, Laman, Taste Osonu biyad kastim lahomis Osonu, because Boruch um, ben Neria has incited you and uh, given you the idea to hand us over to the Babylonians to kill us. Ulahaglos Osonu bovel, and those he doesn't kill, uh, he's going to exile to Babylonia. So they didn't they didn't pay any attention to Jeremiah's prophecy. So after that, this Yochanan ben Korach and uh, most of his uh, most of the former 
army leaders, the army generals, etc., and the civilian ministers of the former government, uh, and plenty of the soldiers, um, went to Egypt, ignoring Yirmiyahu's prophecy, and in Egypt, the sword of Nebuchadnezzar finally caught up with all of them, as Yecheskel here said it would. And uh, this, these are the, this is exactly what happened. That what Yecheskel predicted here, all those that were around the king, King Sidkio, his aides, his civilian aides, his military officers, they were scattered to every direction, but God, so to speak, drew a sword and chased after them. Almost all the people who went to Egypt were killed by, by the Babylonians, uh, who eventually conquered Egypt uh, during, because when they went to Egypt it was at a time when the pharaoh of Egypt was preparing to rebel himself against the Babylonians his rebellion failed and the Babylonians invaded Egypt and when they found Yochanan ben Korach and all the Jews from Yehuda they either killed them all but uh, certainly they killed all the soldiers including this Yochanan ben Korach and just a few of the civilians were taken away, were carted off um, and uh, were taken off into Babylonian exile a few of them managed to return to the land of Israel but um, this again, this is the second part of the prophecy the first part of the prophecy was in verse 13 regarding the king the second part of the prophecy here is in verse 14 regarding all the officers and civilian leaders of Yerushalayim and uh, this prophecy of Yechezkel as I said came to fruition in a matter of a few years and now God says in verse 15 and when all this happens when Sidkiyahu is taken into, into, is blinded and taken into captivity and later on Gedalia is killed by the way Gedalia Gedalia is killed on Rosh Hashanah itself, but so we commemorate the fast of Gedalia, Tzong Gedalia, on the 3rd of um, Tishrei, the day after Rosh Hashanah. You're not allowed to fast on a Chag. Um, the, only, the only time you can ever fast on a Chag or on a holy day is Yom Kippur, if Yom Kippur falls on Shabbat, because uh, Yom Kippur is called Shabbat Shabbaton, um, the Shabbat of Shabbat, so which needs explaining but uh, it's the only fast that you can uh, have on a Shabbat so you can't fast on first day Rosh Hashanah and therefore the fast has to be pushed off uh, to the third of uh, Tishrei but now God says when all this happens after all this, these events you Yechezkel are predicting in verse 15 he says ki ani Hashem, and they will know that I am God when I disperse them among the nations and I scatter them across the lands um, the really amazing thing that this verse exposes here well, this is a, quite a common type of verse where God so to speak gives a prophecy of uh, destruction or God gives a prophecy of something that's going to happen and then he says after that they'll know I'm God but the, the amazing thing that this verse exposes is how stiff-necked the Jewish people can really be. Yechezkel seems to be saying that the Jews will only recognize God um, 
and that God is behind all their troubles when, you know, Yehuda and Yerushalayim, the whole of Yehuda has got to be conquered, Yerushalayim has got to be burnt to the ground, and the temple has got to be burnt to the ground, and, and the, the rest of the population sent into exile and captivity, and when the king is captured whilst escaping, and he's blinded and imprisoned in Babylonia, and when almost all the Jews that managed to flee Yehuda and Yerushalayim to take refuge in Egypt are eventually hunted down by the Babylonians and killed. Only then, only then, that's when they'll realise. And that just gives you an insight into how um, bloody-minded and how stiff-necked these Jewish people, these Jews, well, Jews of any generation, but the Jews of this particular generation were. That's... Um, um, that uh, it took all that, it took all that destruction for them to come to the conclusion, you know what, God must be behind this. And uh, obviously, it, it had an effect, as we'll discuss later, um, but the very fact that uh, they could go through all this torment and all this destruction, all this annihilation and massacre and famine and plague and everything else that goes with it, and only after God has like, exacted every ounce of uh, punishment he can uh, that they'll realise that God is behind all this so now God explains why a remnant of the Jews would survive the Babylonian destruction of Yehuda and Yerushalayim and why even some of those that managed to flee to other lands will also survive but there always has to be a remnant a plate of Sofreya. we say in Davening every day um uh, in the Shemona Esra, three times a day, and there's always going to be survivors in any Jewish disaster. The Jewish people are an indestructible people, so there's always going to be survivors. Now God's going to explain why that is. So in, in verse 16, God says, I will spare from them a few men, uh, from the sword, may rov from the famine, umidever and from the plague, lamani safru so that they will convey or admit all the abominable things that they did by goyim asher boshom in the nations where they went, they go to, and they will know that I am God. In other words, after all, after everything that's happened to them they'll recognise me and they'll uh, do teshuva, so to speak. They'll uh, confess. Um, and the irony here, the irony of the situation here, following everything that happened to the Jews of Yehuda, the southern kingdom, the Jews of Yerushalayim, is that God spared, amongst others, many determined Jewish pagans. And this is, uh, this is the irony. Um, many of the people that were exiled to Babylonia were actually Jewish pagans. Um, and even after witnessing the devastation that had occurred to the Jewish people and found themselves exiled in Egypt, refused to give up their paganism. Um, and they, they were quite happy to tell the prophets about it. They, uh, this is a, prof uh, uh, a, a, a statement from Yirmiyah again. This is right at the end of Yirmiyah, the book of Jeremiah in chapter 44. But we will do everything that has emanated from our mouths previously. 
We're going to continue to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven. In other words, we're going to continue with our sun worship. And to pour libations out to her. As we did and as our ancestors did and as our kings did and as our princes did while we were living in Yehuda. And like we did when we lived in Jerusalem. And we were and we were thus given bread to eat, uh, and life was good for us. And we saw no evil. So that was their attitude. Uh, some of these people that went to Babylonia that escaped, a lot of the Sadiqim were killed. The majority we learnt earlier on in chapters um, eight and nine that the majority of the, of the righteous were killed. And the irony is that um, is that uh, among uh, the survivors, those that arrived in Babylonia, were a lot of the Jewish pagans, those that weren't prepared to give up their paganism. Um, so what God is saying in this verse is, is extremely ironic. It's um, uh, He says, "Laman yisapru," um, so that they will convey and admit, as Koltov will say him they'll admit all the abominable acts that they that they had done whilst they lived in in Yerushalayim. Um, Bagoyim, when they go uh, into exile, Asher Boshom, where they going? But Yoduki ani Asher. But finally they'll know that I am God. And what God is saying here is this, that after the apocalypse of Yehuda, and the destruction of Jerusalem, and the burning of the temple, there's going to be two, two groups, um, two groups that will express an opinion. Yisapru. This word Yisapru, they'll convey, will admit, um, they'll have an opinion on what became of the Jews of Yehuda. Now, what's very interesting is this is something else that we find, as we're going to discuss in a second, this is, again, a common element that um, has, all, has been present at the, th- at the three times that we can really point to a Jewish Holocaust, which is here at the time of the destruction of the first temple, when, again, a third of the Jewish population of the world were murdered, uh, time of the second temple, again, when a third of the Jewish population were murdered, and of course at the time of the Holocaust, in um, our not too distant past, in the last century, uh, again, when a third of the, Ju- the world's Jewish population were murdered. Uh, and it generally, um, uh, the Jewish world, it's, it, it, not exactly, I mean, this is a generalization, um, but if you, if you speak to survivors, so they generally fit into two two categories. Category one is, you know, which is what the Malbim says, and the Malbim's going to comment here as well, is people will say, you know, this thing happened to us, this thing happened to us because there was no God. You know, that this type, of, if, there was, if there was a God, then this, this type of thing could never happen. And the other group say, this happened to us because there is a God. Because God is uh, taking his, is punishing us for the way we behave. So, you have two groups. You have the Baal Teshuva group, and you have the, the people that completely reject Judaism. They throw it out of the toilet, throw, throw it down the toilet, throw Judaism out the toilet. Um, so, 
here, in this posse, God, so to speak, is describing these two groups. He says, Laman Yusapru, he says it in the plural. They will convey, they will admit. Um, and uh, as the Malbin points out here, there's going to be two groups. Um, group number one is the Baal Teshuva movement, which takes root in Babylonia, that will accept that what happened to them uh, and understand that, the, that what happened uh, to Yerushalayim, what happened to Yehuda, the Babylonian exile, etc., etc., that was divine justice. And as the Malbim says, Shehem Atzmom Yodu, they'll recognize themselves, Kiani Hashem, that uh, this is God, this is God taking uh, action. But Eisha Afitz Ozom Bagoyim, once they've settled in and been spread across the world and realize what they've lost, they'll understand that this is divine justice. And they'll recognize that there's a God. There's a God that's running the world and there's a price to pay for behavior. There's, um, every act has consequences. Um, but by the same token, there's going to be a second group, group number two. Um, that, uh, that there's going to be a group that will go into exile and say, no, no, this is our, this is our proof that uh, this, this God, our God is no good. Is no God. And uh, as the Malvin points out here, the pagans of the nations that the Jews are exiled to will say, look at these Jews. They don't even recognize that their God has punished them severely because of their abominable behavior. Look how they persist in provoking their own God by continuing to worship our, our deities. What a, what a terrible crowd they are, these Jews. Like they, um, they want to be more goyim, more goyish than the goyim. Well, they want to be more goyish than us. Um, and, and basically the attitude is, if their God does exist, can't, don't they even recognize that he's punished them? Can't they see that God has already punished them appropriately for their crimes? Or are they too stupid to realize that they need to make, make peace with their own God? And, um, you know, this is, this is uh, something that's repeated itself throughout Jewish history. But the Jewish people, they just, some of, them, some of the Jewish people, they want to be more, more goyish than the goyim. And uh, as I mentioned in, a, in, a, in another shir, I can't remember which shir it was, um, but the nature of the Jewish people was, you know, that the, the Philistines had their gods, and the Ammonites had their gods, and the Moabites had their gods, and, and never the twain shall meet. Like the Philistines would never think of worshipping the uh, Babylonian gods, and the Babylonians would never think of worshipping the Ammonite gods, and the Ammonites would never think of worshipping the Moabite gods. But the Jews, oh, the Jews, the Jews wanted to be, um, wanted to worship everybody's gods. They wanted to worship, they worship the Baal, they worship Baal Pa'ar, they worship Baal Zavuv. They worshipped Ashd- uh, Astarte, Ashtarot. They worshipped Dagon. They worshipped everybody. Every, every, every pagan god they could get their hands on, they wanted to worship. And they wanted to get involved in. And the Goyim laughed at them. The pagans laughed at them. As is pointed out here by the Malbin. But it, uh, it developed into two groups. One group, uh, at least the Goyim had respect for. The Jews that clung on to, that recognized that uh, what they, they were being punished, divinely punished, for something that they'd done. So they earned the respect of the, of the pagans. Uh, the pagans looked at them and said, oh, at least they accept 
the idea that their God has uh, punished them for their, their behaviour. But they laughed at the others. They laughed at the, uh, the, the, the Jews that wanted to remain pagans. So, that, and that, again, that's a common theme, that's a common theme that we see throughout Jewish history. And we see it at the times of the Inquisition, with plenty of Jews wanting to convert to, I mean, a lot of Jews had, were, were forcibly converted to Christianity, but there was a fair amount of Jews that uh, volunteered, were, couldn't wait to, to convert to Christianity, and a lot of them became bishops, a lot of them became archbishops and cardinals, and God knows what. And, um, you know, they were the worst uh, per- persecutors of the Jews. Tor Kamada came from a Jewish family, he was the leader of the Inquisition, he had Friar Paul, Pablo Cristiani, and um, Rabonim, you had Rabonim, uh, that converted to Christianity, that persecuted the Jews, uh, Avner of Burgos, um, who was uh, one of the Rishonim, who wrote uh, a parish, wrote a commentary on the whole of Shas, he converted to Christianity, um, and uh, you know, that's just one of the... Um, um, one of the facts of Jewish history that uh, we shouldn't be very proud of. That, uh, you know, the, the mistake the Christians made was that they thought that if the rabbi would convert, so all the uh, parishioners would also convert. That's a foolish mistake to make because um, they, the Jewish people are not, not over-impressed with their own rabbis, especially not the ones living in their own generation. So, that's, that's what God's saying here in this verse, in verse, in verse um, uh, 16. Very interesting statement that um, God says here. Give them the opportunity to tell me what they think about exile. Whether they think it was from me, or whether they think they couldn't be, they, even now they can't be bothered to deal with me. But he says, there'll be some there, but Yodu Kiyani There'll be a Baal movement, which of course the, uh, the Baal Teshuvah movement in Babylonia became huge, absolutely huge. And it gave birth to the greatest yeshivas um, the Jewish people have ever produced. It gave birth to Naharadoi, who had 12,000 students at one time. It gave birth to the yeshiva of Surah, which had even more, gave birth to Pompadisa and Mechuza and uh, the, the huge Jewish community in Babylonia that was an extremely religious community, extremely uh, religious uh, Jewish community that were there all the way through until the end of the, uh, well, certainly to the end of the 10th century. Um, and Jews lived in Babylonia, which is modern-day Iraq in parts of Iran, um, you know, 1500 years, um, 1500 years before, well, not 1500 years, but certainly a thousand years before Islam, before Islam came along. It's when Islam came along in the 7th century that things started to turn pear shaped for the Jews in Babylonia. Anyway, God continues now in verses 17 and 18. This is a new, a new prophecy. Just uh, let me ask. That's not new prophecy. Anybody got any questions up to this point? Okay. Says God, by he devour, says Yechezkel, by he devour Hashem Eli Lamar. The word of God came to be saying, verse 18, Ben Adon, Lach Machabarash Tochel. 
You should eat your bread while shaking, while quaking. And you should drink your water whilst trembling with worry, with anxiety. So, what's going on here? What's, what's this prophecy all about? Says, the, um, says God to uh, Yechezkel. In addition to Yechezkel's demonstration, because uh, Yechezkel is still in the process of giving his demonstration to the people of what going into exile looks like, uh, leaving just with the clothes on your back and schlepping along your basic needs, your basic implements that you need for exile, Yechezkel is now told to demonstrate the reality of exile and living day to day with that trauma. Um, and the Bible now says, "Olach mechabarash tochel memechab berugazel b'dagah tishda kolma shebiyosa ochel b'shosa lo yikabul gufo hanav lo simcha." When you're in exile, what Yechezkel is being told to show them is that uh, you know you can't enjoy anything. You, 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 you're worried from minute to minute, from second to second, what might happen to you any second from now. So you can't even eat, and you can't even drink. Uh, as he says, uh, when you're eating and drinking, you can't even draw any you know, physical pleasure from drinking and eating. You've got no joy in life, because you're, you're absolutely at the mercy of people who, who you know, who have murdered, you know, nearly a million of your countrymen, a million of your co-religionists, and you don't know when, when the next pogrom is going to be in your town. So you can't even sit and eat and have a meal uh, because of the worry of what's going to happen next. And uh, Zamalbin, as ever, is quick to point out, interestingly, um, that the apparent similes or synonyms in Hebrew are nothing of the sort. If you look at the language of this posuk, um, God uses this language and uh, the, the Malbim says there's a big difference um, between Ragoza or Rogza and Da'oga. He says that's the fear, fear of the present when you, you just don't know what's going to happen next. Worry is for the future. Like, uh, you're, wrong, you're trembling because you're concerned that somebody's going to come through the door with a pickaxe handle and a baseball bat. That's rogza. That's trembling. She says, daga, which is from the language of Lidog, to, to worry, that's about the future. Like, what have we got to look forward to? Is there, a, is there, a, is there, a light at, is there ever going to be a light at the end of the tunnel? You're just worried about the future, the future of your, your, you and your wife and your children and your grandchildren. Are they going to have any future? So that's the difference between Rodzon Dago, says it, the uh, Malbim. He says, and that, that was what life was like at the start of the exile. Like people were living in hovels, they didn't have anything. They built themselves up, certainly. But uh, at the start, it's like the start of every exile. Jews move into a country, they've got nothing. If you think about... Um, uh, the Jews that moved to New York uh, on, on the Lower East Side um, they were oppressed and victimised by the previous groups of immigrants by the Italians and by the Irish and when the Jews arrived in the East End of London uh, they were, that's where they were the bottom of the ladder uh, concerned about uh, anti-Semitism concerned they're going to get beaten and wherever they go Poland, 
France, wherever it, where it is, the start of the exile is always terrible. It gets better, but it always starts terrible. It always starts with Rogza and with Dagger. That uh, what's going to happen tomorrow, and uh, even if it, even if tomorrow, we, even if we survive tomorrow, will we survive till next year? So that's uh, says the Malbim. That's the 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 darkness of exile. Um, what's interesting in this pasuk is the strange word rash. Now, I want to just mention this word rash. We've had it a few times before in the book of Yechezkel, and it it occurs quite frequently. Uh, in the uh, in the Tanakh, um, and it appears in this verse where God commands Yecheskel lach mechol barash tochel, and we translated it, you will eat your bread with rash while trembling, while quaking. Um, now the word rash literally does mean trembling, even though we when we came across the word in the third chapter in the very famous verse uh, that we mention in davening every day. We translate. We translated it slightly differently. We translated it as a very loud noise. So in, in chapter three, verse twelve, uh, Yechezkel is describing his interactions with the, some of the angels, and it says, "Vatisa'ini ruach," and the wind lifted me up. Ve'eshma achrai, and I heard behind me kol rash godol, the sound of a great uproar. Boruch kavod Hashem minkama which is, again, something we say every day, we say it in Kedusha, we say it in Davening, blessed is God from his place. Baruch Kavod Hashem Mim Koma. But it says before, Now the word rash literally does mean trembling. Um, and we know that from a very famous story in Tanakh. Um, everybody knows this, or everybody should know this story, I don't know, everybody does, everybody does know it, but everybody should know this story, it's a story that takes place to Elioh Anovi, Elioh Anovi has just finished um, performing miracles on, on Mount Carmel, where Mount Carmel is the matter of debate, which Mount Carmel it was, but he's just for, finished performing a miracle on top of Mount Carmel, where all the prophets of Baal have been killed, and um, he, the Jewish people, so to speak, did some type of repentance, and then next day, or like a couple of days later, they were reverting back into their own their old paganism. And Eliyahu and Navi said to God, "You know, enough, enough already. I'm not interested. Uh, I've tried to do my job. These Jewish people are just too hard to deal with. Let me die." And he went into the desert and he propped himself up up by a tree. And he said he's ready to die. But uh, God, so to speak, commanded him to travel to Mount Sinai uh, to replicate the meeting that God had with Moshe there. At a place called Nikras Hasur, which is the place where Moshe Rabbeinu was uh, when he received the Aseris Adibros, when he was interacting with God on Mount Sinai. It's called Nikras Hasur, the gap in the mountain, like the, the cave that was on the top of Mount Sinai. And this is the only other person that was allowed to go there. This is Elio Anovi. Um, and he was told to go there. And that God, so to speak, would reveal himself to um, Elio Anovi in the same way that he re- revealed himself to Moshe Rabbeinu. And this is recorded in the first book of Malachim in chapter 19. And Elio makes it to the same cave as Moshe, to Nikras Atzur. And... Um, 
And God says to him, this is, we'll pick, we'll pick the story up, we'll just do one verse, uh, or a couple of verses, and um, God says to Eliyahu Anavi, Vayomet save our mother Tabahor. God said to him, exit the cave, leave the cave, and stand on like on the precipice of the mountain, looking down. Something I wouldn't be able to do, uh, but fear of heights. Uh, in front of me, in front of God. Hashem over, and I and behold, I God will pass by, and then then the pasuk says gadola, and a great and powerful wind, that a strong wind came that was splitting the mountains and shattering the boulders before God. But the Pesach says, Hashem, lo baruach Hashem. God was not in the wind. God was not in this, uh, this storm. Ba'acha haruach rash. And after the, the wind, an earthquake. Lo barash Hashem. But God was not in the earthquake. But after harash ish, and after the earthquake was fire, lo boesh Hashem. But God was not in the fire. But after ha'ish, and after the fire, called the momadako. After the fire was a tiny, small sound. And that was God. So, apart from anything else, um, what we learn from that is the word rash means trembling. So it means an earthquake. And it's used to describe, so, so to speak, the movements of God. But God is not in the storm. God is not in the fire. God is, God is called the momadaka. God is a very small sound. Um, and this is what we say on Yom Kippur. This is very appropriate for the time of the year. Because on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur we say a prayer... Uh, it's the Kedusha Sayom, it's the high point of Musaf on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it's called Nasana Tokev, uh, the prayer of Nasana Tokev, and it's where God, so to speak, reveals himself as Kol Domoma Daka Yishoma, that God listens, as my Rebbe used to say, just be careful what you say, God might be listening. Kol Domoma Daka Yishoma. Because God is the tiny, the, the weak sound in the universe. The, the sound you can barely hear. You have to listen very carefully to hear God operating in the universe. But by the same token, just like God, so to speak, operates almost silently in nature, so to speak, through the universe. But called the Momadaka Yishoma, he hears everything. He hears everything that's going on. So th- this is the source of this word rash. And it... Uh, I don't know what it, the actual translation is in modern Hebrew. I think it means uh, uh, um, I, don't, I think it might be used for both for for like a, a commotion. Um, is there any anybody who who uses uses in in uh, he, uh, fluent Hebrew modern Hebrew speakers? Baruch, what what's the word rash used for generally in modern Hebrew? Anyone? Okay, I think I think it's used for I think it's used for um, a commotion, uh, an uproar. So it can be used for uh, in terms of uh, noise and also in terms of trembling. Um, so there was another 
you know, this was, this, so this was an earthquake. This is where we get the word Raj from. Um, um, there was another Raj, there was another earthquake in Yerushalayim. It's also recorded in the Tanakh during the reign uh, of the righteous or the ostensibly righteous King Uziahu. Uh, now, King Uziel was a very strange uh, individual. King Uziel was a perfectionist, and he didn't like the way people did things. And um, the, he didn't like the way the Kohen Godol, he didn't like the way the high priest was doing his job, so he decided he's going to do it himself. And uh, on Yom Kippur, he went into the Kodesh Kadoshim because he didn't think the Kohen Godol was doing the job properly, um, and uh, as he entered the uh, Kodesh Kadoshim, there was an earthquake in the land of Israel. And when he emerged, when Uziahu emerged from the Kodesh Kadoshim, from the Holy of Holies, he was struck down with leprosy, not leprosy, with saras, and he lived the rest of his reign in a house built specifically for, specifically for him in the graveyard, um, out of town, in the Beisachovshi. The, 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 it's called the Beis Achofshi, it's called the free house because you don't pay any rent there it's, that's what the graveyard it's like a euphemism for the graveyard uh, Beis Achofshi, the free hotel where you don't pay any rent you don't pay any nightly um, rates you're there for good, so to speak and he lived there, they built a house for him there and he lived there, but uh, when he walked in the um, in the Kodesh Kadoshim, there was a rash there was a um, there was a, uh, a, a, an earthquake. So although we generally translate the word Raj as a loud noise, and I think that's the way it's translated into modern Hebrew, I'm not sure. Its real meaning is great trembling and an earthquake. Uh, and we find this mistranslation occurs very regularly uh, between the words in the Tanakh and how they're used in modern Hebrew. So there's, it, 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 so somebody that you know, learns a lot of Gemara um, and obviously I teach a lot of Tanakh I have to laugh sometimes at the words in modern Hebrew how they've been misadapted um, to create uh, meanings that just are not there in Hebrew uh, the most obvious example I give just give you one example is Abba in Ima right in modern Hebrew Abba in Ima everyone calls their father Abba and their mother Ima right it can be more, a more Hebrew word than Abba and Ima um, now, the Hebrew words for father and mother are Av and Aim. Not Abba and Ima. Av, that's the Hebrew. Av and Aim. Uh, Abba and Ima is actually Aramaic. Abba is father in Ar- Aramaic and Ima is mother in Aramaic. Um, and the proof, proof is from Aesop. Aesop begs his father, Borcheni gam oni ovi. Bless me, my father. Ab, Ab. Not Abba. He doesn't say Borcheni Gan Oni Abba. Um, and, um, and also, if you look, if you look at the Aramaic translation in Uncleus, you'll see. Right? Uncleus translate that, translates that process, that verse, um, uh, from Aesop, where Aesop is begging his father to bless him. The Hebrew says Borcheni Gan Ani Ovi, bless me too, my father. And looking, Uncle Us says, Borechni af ano Abba. Abba. 
And that's just one of a thousand examples that you could bring out where, you know, uh, modern Hebrew and uh, true biblical Hebrew are at odds with each other. And there's thousands and thousands of examples. Anyway, back to the story. God continues. God continues now. Uh, his instructions to Yechezkel. Verse 19. And you shall say to the people of the land. And again, it's a reference to Amoretz. To ignoramuses mainly. So said God. About the dwellers of Jerusalem living in the land of Israel. Their bread they will eat with anxiety. And their water they will drink in desolation. That's Laman. Tesham Mimloa, so that their land will become desolate, Mimloa, from its population, Mechamas Kolayoshrimbo, because of the Hamas of all who live there. Now, God's just told Yechezko in the previous uh, uh, iteration, the previous verses, that he should eat your bread and drink your water, eat your bread with trembling and drink your water with great preparation trepidation, in front of the Am Ha'aretz. Now, who are the Am Ha'aretz here? But Omarta El Am Ha'aretz. Who are the Am Ha'aretz here? So, the Am Ha'aretz here are the, must be the Babylonian Jews. That's, uh, that's where Yechezkel is living. Um, and uh, the message here to Yechezkel is you can tell them. You can tell the Am Ha'aretz. You can tell the Babylonian, the ignorant Babylonian Jews. You can tell them that this will be the scene very shortly in Yerushalayim, like when you, you sit there and you're demonstrating to them, shaking while you're eating and, and worried, have a worried look on your face while you're drinking your water, but this is going to be the scene very shortly in Yerushalayim and across the whole of Israel, across the whole of Yehuda. Because when the Babylonians see Yerushalayim, everyone will consume their food and drink with dread, worry, and they'll be thinking, if only King Tzidkiyol had not rebelled against the, the Babylonians. If only King Sidkiyol had not rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, because then we could have maintained peace and calm with, with him and the Babylonians, and the country would not now be destroyed, and all the population either being killed or deported and exiled. Um, and God adds to Yechezkel, tell them this, Mechamas kol Yoshrimbo, because of the Hamas of all who dwell there. Meaning, you people might be wondering why you were so stupid to go along with King Sidkio and rebel against the Babylonians and lose your city and lose your country and have half your family murdered. And the answer, says God, is very simple. As the Malbin points out, because of the way your corrupt society works. How you indulged in robbery and extortion, and we've talked about this in previous Shurim, the, the way that uh, the Jews lived, apart from all the idolatry and the paganism and everything, the sexual impropriety that was going on in Yerushalayim, the whole place was corrupt. Because how you indulged in robbery and extortion and, and got away with it. So I attain believe on Shiyil Khamu in Nebuchadnezzar. 
I put the idea into your hearts and into the heart of Sidkiyo that you could get away with anything. Even rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So that. And now you'll reap, so to speak, you'll reap the dividends of that behavior. Because you, the population, and all the assets you have, as a result of all that Hamas, as a result of all that corruption, everything you've accumulated as a result of all the, the corruption that was an, an endemic in your society, will be lost to Babylon. And he says, it's Midikineged Midah. You thought you could get away with corruption. So God says, so I put it into your hearts, that you could even get away, I put it into your minds, in the mind of King Sidkiol, and to everybody in Yerushalayim, that you, you, could, you, you could think you could get away with taking on the Babylonians and beating them in a battle, and rebelling against them and winning. But guess what? That's not what happened. And so everything you gained with Hamas, that this is the, the point of this verse. God says, paganism and sexual impropriety aside, um, that uh, you should know that the reason why you, that this, is, this is all coming upon you now, all of a sudden, you know, you rebelled against the Babylonians because you got to the point where you thought you could get away with everything. Because you weren't getting away with everything. Everything you, you, you tried to do, all the corruption, the theft, the extortion, everything that was going on in Yerushalayim, Chomos, Kolayoshvimbo. It was endemic in society. So you thought you could get away with it. So I put it into your heads that you th- to think you could get away with taking on the Babylonians. And guess what? It didn't work out. Continues God in verse 20, Veherorim anoshobos techaravna. And the inhabited cities, inhabited cities of Yerushalayim, of uh, Yehuda, will be in ruin. Vahoret shemoma tiyeh. And the land will be desolate. Vidatem kiyane Hashem. And if you didn't know before, now you will know that I am God. But this is the final part of this section. God says, apart from Yerushalayim, all the inhabited cities, it, 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 it will be in ruins. Uh, not just Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim burnt down. The base of Migdosh burnt down. Uh, but everywhere else, the Babylonians will take out their revenge against you in every other city. Uh, they'll all be in ruins. The land will be completely de- desolate when the Babylonians are finished with you. And finally, 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 Interestingly, what's interesting here, and maybe we'll deal with this next week, God is prepared, God is prepared to make a chilul Hashem of himself, so to speak. God is prepared to make a chilul Hashem of himself, in order to teach the Jews that their evil actions have got evil consequences. Like he's even prepared for, I don't know how to, to desecrate his own name, by destroying his own city, by destroying his own temple, by destroying his own house, by destroying his own country. He's, he's prepared to desecrate his own name. Now, the, the, the worst crime a, Jew, a Jewish person can do is Chil Hashem, to do an action that desecrates God's name and bring God, brings God, so to speak, into disrepute. But this is exactly what God is doing. This is exactly what God is doing here. He's desecrating his own re- re- reputation. Now, what's very interesting, you know, he's destroying his own country. He's, he's uh, arranging for his own population to die of plague, famine and the sword and be dragged up into exile and he's prepared to do that. 
so that all the nations can make the claim, oh, that God of Israel is useless. That God of Israel doesn't know what he's doing. That God of Israel probably doesn't exist. If he does exist, why isn't he coming to help out his people when we're attacking them? And it seems that God is prepared, so to speak, to create a chil on himself. And I'll leave you with this thought. This is precisely the obverse of the argument used successfully by Moshe in the desert. If you remember the story of the golden calf, um, and God, so to speak, was prepared to destroy the Jews after the sin of the golden calf. And he tells Moshe Rabbeinu, after whatever the sin of the golden calf was, we're not going to go into that now, but listen to, listen to what he tells Mo, listen to what God tells Moshe Rabbeinu. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu has been driving him mad. Like, don't, don't do it, don't take action against the Jews. He says, God says, leave me alone. Let my anger burn against them and I will annihilate them. I'll still have you, Moshe. I'll make a great nation out of you. Now, Moshe rejects God's proposal to make Moshe and his descendants, the new chosen people, encounters with this logic. Now, I want you to think about this because we'll discuss it next week. Moshe's logic is this. Why, why do you want to destroy the Jews? You know if you destroy the Jews, you know what the Egyptians will say? Huh. You know the Egyptians will be joking. They'll say, <laughs> Look what their God did. He brought them out of Egypt with, with evil intent to kill them in the mountains. And to wipe them, annihilate them from the face of the earth. Moshe says to God, if you destroy the Jews now, that's what the Egyptians will say. That you either don't exist or you're a rot, dirty, rotten God. Because you, you're, you're, you're vindictive. You took them out of Egypt, you went to the trouble of taking them out of Egypt, only to destroy them in the desert. And then he says the famous words which we say during, the, during this period. Constantly during the forty days of El and uh, the Aseris you made to Shuva, Shuv mecharona pecha, withdraw from the heat of your anger, vihinochem al horolamecha, and reconsider the evil you intended for your people. Now, what's amazing is Moshe's argument to God is not you shouldn't destroy them because really in their hearts they're truly good people. He doesn't say that. Moshe doesn't say that. Moshe's argument is, if you destroy them, you, the people, and your Torah that you've just given them will be a laughing stock. A laughing stock to the nations. Which, is the, which will be the greatest chil Lashem, the greatest desecration of God's name ever in history. And yet, what do we see here in this story? And, and God responds to Moshe. What's God's response to Moshe? Two verses later, God says, the Torah says, God reconsidered and relented of the action, the evil action or the, the violent action he said he would do to his people. So Moshe's argument worked. Moshe's argument worked. Moshe says, 
you know, Moshe didn't try to argue that the Jews were a great bunch of lads, you know, and you shouldn't destroy them because they're a huge tzaddikim and uh, that this, that, that, they are. No! He said, he said, listen, from your perspective, God, if you destroy these Jews, you'll be the laughing stock because all the nations around will say, oh, look at that God, look what he did. He, he went to all the trouble of the ten plagues and spit in the Red Sea and then, in a fit of peak, just because they built a golden calf, he wiped them all out. What a joke that God is. I'm glad he's not our God. And God said, okay, I'll t- yeah, okay. Uh, that's, uh, yeah. The problem is, the problem that concerns us is here. Here, at the time of the destruction of the first temple. God seems to have changed his mind about that logic. God seems quite content for the land of Yehuda, the city of Yerushalayim, and his own house, the base of Migdash, to be totally destroyed. And for the population almost wiped out, and the survivors to go into exile. God seems quite unperturbed by the glee that this decision will engender with all the nations in the region, and the Chil Hashem that, that that will cause. What's very interesting is, 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 to us is that on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur we use Moshe's logic. This is what we use. We use, we use Moshe's words. Shuv micharon apecha v'hinochem al harol amecha. We use Moshe's words to try and encourage God to forgive us and grant us atonement for our sins. And we say it with great regularity to God during the ten days as the Aserity made Teshuvah, which are coming up very shortly. Withdraw from the heat of your anger and reconsider the evil intended for your people. Shuv micharon apecho v'hinochem al-aradho And yet, at the time of the second temple, God wasn't, didn't seem to take on board that logic. So, where does that leave us? Um, it leads us I'll finish with this. You can think about this for you know, it's L, so this is the time to think about it. From I, I, when I thought about this, I, you know, I'm, it really concerned me because we're in a position where we've got two 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 situations here: one at the time of the um, golden calf, and one at the time of the destruction of the base of Midrash. At one time, the logic worked, where God was influenced, so to speak, by the prayers of Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, and was influenced by the fact that uh, what he was doing, what God would, had planned to do, was a chil Hashem. That was at the time of the Eger, the golden carpet. Here, Second Temple, God seems completely unperturbed about the fact that it's going to be a chil Hashem. So where does that leave us? Here, in 2023. So, the only thing I could think of is well, we, we have to hope, so to speak. I mean, this is just, um, this is just idle thought. But we can only hope that God is in the mood, so to speak, the same sort of mood as he was after the golden calf, rather than the attitude he took at the time of the destruction of the first temple. At the time of the golden calf, he was, um, he was persuaded, so to speak, by Shuv Mecharon Apecha He was persuaded by that argument. At the time of the second destruction of the first temple, that argument just didn't hold any water. Okay, that's where we... Oh, I'm finished late again. Sorry about that. Uh, but we're up to verse um, 21. I wanted to get here anyway. We're up to verse 21 and 22, which is the start of a new prophecy, um, which we'll deal with in Mitzvah Shem. 
next Monday. I hope you enjoyed the year today. Um, sorry, I went a bit over time. Everyone, people that know my shearing by now know that uh, I can't be relied on to finish on time. Um, have a great week and have a great Shabbat. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you, please God, same time, same place, in health and happiness next Monday at 5. Call to everybody.